Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take on your questions on guest bailing, using formal titles in person versus familiar names in emails, how hosts should handle hair, what's the deal with spoons, and birthing boundaries. All that plus a postscript segment from the rituals of dinner. Your feedback and salutes coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How was it? I had a wonderful New Year's. I went and saw my my good buddy Justin Panagudi play. Um, he does an awesome Van Morrison cover band and we had a blast. And my friends Jenny and Frank, newly enfianced, I don't think I said that right, but they just got engaged so it was really fun to celebrate with the two of them. They came over and stayed at the house I was taking care of and it was just an awesome, awesome, like good old friends, good solid, nothing crazy, nothing ridiculous. I could share a million stories from the night, but I probably won't. Still, I'm so proud of you for going out, getting up, going out, doing something so much more than I can claim I managed. I like the quiet New Year's too, though. I think what you do is like really, I, I like it. It's, you know me, I'm big on restorative, thoughtful, reflective so absolutely and and um i am as well my wife is a much more social and gregarious human than i am but i think after we had moved and then we were hosting for the, the christmas holiday it felt like a just delicious holiday to not do anything to not go out and we we took turns falling asleep over the course <laughs> of the night and thinking that we would be the the, the other one would be the one to be up to for be the up ball for to drop minute. and then we both fell asleep before neither one you woke up to 2017 as opposed to uh ring it in we sure did. Very, very nice. Do you guys do like in my immediate family, we always had like a big special New Year's Day dinner. My grandfather on that side had been born on New Year's Day. So New Aww. Year's like they did a raucous party the night before. But then they'd always do a really special dinner for his birthday. So that carried over into our family. And like always just one kind of really decadent special meal on New Year's. No, we you didn't don't know? do that. But we what we did do. It's so silly because I, I, I talk about football in my life with maybe greater weight than some people might think it deserves. But Sunday happened to be New Year's Day. Yeah. So Pooja and I went over to my brother's house. He has two daughters. And we had a, a lunch together and watched an early football oh, game. And That's it was wonderful. playing with my nieces yeah. and catching up with my brother. So it was a real family time. Totally. Is football time. Totally. Totally. So that was my New Year's Day oh. party. Oh. 
Well, I dug it. You came up on my New Year's. Some of the members at the the Rusty Nail actually knew you and your brother. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of fun. I felt like I had a little bit of family around me. One of the other security guys there knew uh, Chris and Terry and, and our grandparents' house up in Stowe or in Waterbury and was talking about the land and the property and the walking trails and the little mini golf course Poppy had built. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, so it was kind of fun. I had a little bit of a feeling of family thanks to the Rusty Nail crew. Nice to be local up yeah. in the Waterbury Center Stowe area. Yeah, I dug it. And it was beautiful. Um, we're here. First new show in the new year. I mean, we're here. We are. Congratulations to you, you and too. to everyone out there who has made the transition with us. <laughs> it's, it's so good to, to still be here with you. I know, right? One of the show notes here is talking back to looking back at that first episode. And, and I didn't, I'm looking at the note and going, I didn't even realize you were in Seoul with my dad working on a on a project when this first episode had actually aired. You and I had recorded it, and then I had le- left the country, was working. We did a couple weeks of training, and it was maybe a week and a half in that I was able to download the first show. And oh, cool. I remember thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to have to play this for Peter Post, Lizzie's father. And <laughs> it was a new venture at the time. It was something we were trying out. And I remember being so satisfied, so happy with the introduction for the show where we talked about uh, a system of etiquette based on core principles of consideration, respect, and honesty. And we were doing two weeks of training where we were training people to 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 teach etiquette in a professional context. And that whole training is based on these core principles of consideration, respect, and honesty. And to hear us articulate that idea in this very different medium, this very different venture, was really exciting. It was fun to, to hear how consistent that message is, how valid it is, how... Um, how how solid I think the advice that's based on consideration, respect, and honesty is and how well it translated to this medium. And I remember your father, Peter, being really excited about that also. Well, and it's held up for two years. I am so excited. As we were putting this show together today, we had bumped up our air date by a day. So I was like, okay, get my fingers typing. And I was amazed when I was going through and reading and picking questions and such at how many people talk about thinking about consideration, respect, and honesty first, and then mm-hmm. they, they still get stuck a thought or two later, or they say, you know, so here are the options I came up with. And then it's amazing how much a lot of that forethought work is, you can see people adopting it, enjoying it, seeing where it works, where it doesn't work, and where they still need to kind of zhuzh and adjust. And it's it's exciting. It's exciting that after two years and that being our first topic, that it's still so important, both Obviously, to us, it's the mission of our company, basically, but also to our audience and that it's useful for them. And that is so wonderful. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And speaking of our wonderful audience and their curious questions, I think we have a couple questions. We absolutely do. Let's get to your questions. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. 
What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. On each and every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. We're still getting a dedicated line set up for the show, so for now, please feel free to record your message. We love to hear your voices and email it to us also at awesomeetiquette.com. Let's get to our first question, which is about electronic familiarity. Dear Lizzie, by, I'm just so excited by this question, by the way. This is a new kind of etiquette issue question, and I love it. Dear Lizzie and Dan, first of all, many thanks for your podcast. I discovered the show quite recently, but have already listened to a huge amount of episodes. I find it calming, entertaining, and unimposing. Much like a good host, I suppose. I am an undergraduate student, and I communicate with professors on a regular basis. Some of them have told me that I may call them by their first name. Others, though, have not stated what I should call them, and I have been addressing them by their formal titles, since I have not been otherwise instructed. However, some of these professors have signed emails to me with their first name alone. So my question boils down to this. Is it okay to call people by their first name if that is how they have signed written communications to me? I feel odd about that, at least in some cases. But I don't feel comfortable asking them directly what I should call them either. What is the textbook etiquette for this situation, especially when addressing someone who is several decades your elder and is an authority figure at an institution where you are a student? Thanks again for a great podcast. All the best, Ben. Oh, Ben, thank you for the great question. I'm going to share my cousin's enthusiasm about this question. I think it is brilliant. And it's brilliant because it looks to really honor people. And I love that. I love that care and attention to relationships, to how uh, we address people, because it is so important. The textbook etiquette answer to your question is that you always look to call people what they prefer to be called. And that might be with their full title if they're a teacher. It might be with their first name. If there is any question about what someone likes to be called, you would want to ask them. And I would defer to the more formal until I had determined the other. And the reason that I would say that is that it's always easier to notch it down than it is to notch it back up. You want to be really careful that you don't offer that offense unintentionally and then have to, to make up for it at some point down the road. So I would start with a full title, professor, last name, mm-hmm. and then I would get more informal as time went on. I definitely think you're doing the right thing. You're looking for clues and you're saying, boy, this person signs their emails to me using their first name. That's certainly a clue that they might... 
be open to a more informal form of address. And if you hear other students using that first name, if that seems to be the absolute standard, you might start to add up enough of these clues <laughs> that you get a pretty good understanding that that's what's accepted, that's what this particular professor prefers. If you don't have a couple of layers to that sluicing out, to that detective work, I would just ask. And I, there's nothing inappropriate about that. You know, I've noticed you signed your email's first name, but I call all my professors here professor last name. What do you prefer? They tell you the answer, you're off to the races, and then you want to honor whatever they tell you from that point moving forward. See, I love that because it's just simple and clear and it's it's there and it works. Because I was sitting here thinking like, oh, it would be so weird if your boss is always signing their name Vanessa and yet you've never had that in-person permission given. Just so you know, one of our family friends stuck by that rule so much that it wasn't until she was 40 years old that my grandmother finally said, it's okay to call me Patsy to her. It was like Mm -hmm. she just stuck by the rule of until that person says it to your face, you do not, even if they've signed cards, whatever it is, you do not do that. And so it can be a thing. And I'm sitting here thinking, how weird would that be if you have regular communication with someone who signs their, their familiar name to you, but in person, they've never given that permission. So you want to be calling them by their, their title. And it's like, Oh, that seems I could see how that could be really awkward, too. So it's like I love Dan's approach of just ask that and even explain the confusion. Say, like, you know, I I know I I was taught to wait that e- mm-hmm. your emails all say this. I wanted to be respectful. And I think that's such an honest and simple way to handle it. I like how you're taking us back even further <laughs> that the, there is really a core etiquette that you don't want to ask for an informality that's not being offered. Right. So I, I wouldn't necessarily apply this to the most honored and revered matriarch in a very large family who sets her clock on propriety. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm referring to Lizzie's grandmother in this case. The, uh, Other grandmother, yeah. <laughs> um, but that that in school environments, we oftentimes tell kids to be sure to check with their teacher. And oftentimes a teacher will say something yes. at the, the opening of a class, the beginning of a school year. And absolutely, you want to honor whatever their requests are and stick to that. But again, if you've got a situation like this where there are starting to be some clues that might point you in a direction, they seem to have opened the door to this informality. And that really makes you, I think, in good territory, yeah. asking that question, asking it in a way that's low stakes. It's also true that they might say, oh, no, I really like being called professor last name. And I'm thinking about signing emails that if you always signed your email with your full name and title, Title. it might start to feel a little strange. In some ways, when you sign an email, it's almost like you're just jotting your signature at the base. So you might start to do your first name and not really necessarily want people to call you by your first name. I think there's... This Just a little thought. bit of 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 uh, a question there that I think makes it worth asking, not just assuming that the person wants that level of informality that in the makes relationship. Me wonder about back in Emily's day when letters were the way that you got a message to someone so so frequently. That's that's how mm-hmm. you're communicating if you're not in person. Telephone did come along in her era. But I'm just wondering how many people signed with their initials or their something, just like what you're talking about, but then still expected the in-person title to be used. So 
We might have to do a little digging and see about historically how this was handled. Ben, we hope that that gives you an avenue to pursue. You can use Dan's Dan's suggested language, which was excellent, to uh, talk to your professor. And, you know, for those who have been signing a name one way but haven't given that in-person permission yet, I think that that's a great avenue to go down. And best of luck with all your studies. Our next question is about sizing and superfluous spoons. I am confused about spoons. In a formal table setting, I have never seen a table setting that did not include a spoon next to the knife. Most of the time, one would see a teaspoon. I have also seen a place spoon, even if soup is not served. So which is it? Which spoon should be used? I have been told that a teaspoon is used for coffee or tea and should be brought to the table with these hot beverages, and a larger place spoon is used for the table setting. Thank you most kindly, Diana. Oh, Diana, I love I love that you've asked this question. What's the deal with the spoons? And it is kind of superfluous sometimes. <laughs> it's really funny, but some people are so ingrained, and I'm one of them too, in fork, knife, spoon. Yep. That when I just go to set, no, no, Diana was asking about formal table settings, but so often you're at a restaurant, they don't know what you're going to order. If they do those roll-ups, they're wanting to include everything, or mm-hmm. sometimes they do roll-ups where they leave the spoon out. So, so I'm seeing all these casual situations where sometimes there is just this extra spoon. I have also seen a lot of situations where you're looking at that formal place setting and someone has included a spoon and there is no soup and it's a big spoon. It's not a dessert spoon. It's not, you know, at the top of the setting. It's not, you know, way in next to the plate. It's not any of these indicators that this is a part of the meal. It's, well, it's an indicator that there's going to be soup or so, like a stew served, but then that doesn't happen. And you're like, oh, and wait, what? It, it is funny. The spoon is almost like a comfort spoon. It's like a companion spoon. It's like a it's like a spoon to make sure the knife doesn't feel lonely. No, a just-in-case spoon? A just-in-case spoon. I think it's also a, I don't know, the table setting looks pretty like that spoon. So I think the spoon kind of gets a, a little bit of encouragement to be out on the table even when it doesn't need to be. I do know that that teaspoon is usually the size that you would set for dessert or coffee and like you said that's often brought out that's not something you include on the table setting to begin with although dessert we often see that spoon and fork up at the top of the place setting if they aren't brought out later so just something to think about um the large spoon is definitely set for meals that include stew or soup um, and occasionally there's like you know that more circular soup spoon that, that kind of really it's like designated soup spoon looks like we would think of a soup spoon looking it's pretty round shape exactly yep. sometimes that gets used but oftentimes they're they're not set at all that's always a nice thing i'd say Decide as a host how you want to handle the spoon. Do you want it to be something that gets brought out just for coffee? Do you want it to be that thing that just simply completes the fork knife spoon options on the table? Put out only what you need to use. I like it because then you're not either scratching your nice silver or you're not like setting it out to get worn and used up. Um, You know, there's less washing to do at the end of the night. I mean, I kind of go for the practical reasons of leaving the spoon out. If someone is working from outside in, are they feeling that they're expected to use that spoon as they work their way towards the fork? What do I do with it? Why is it here? I fall in my cousin's camp. I think that if there's no plan to use that spoon, I would omit it as a host. But I also understand people who like that full feeling for a yeah. place setting, like to include that place spoon in the setting right from the start, even if it's really not necessarily going to be used. Diana, we hope that that helps a little bit and that you uh, feel 
totally confident in deciding whether you will use that extra spoon or not in your table settings as a host. And we would agree it is sometimes a little superfluous. (laughs) Our next question is titled, Hypothetical Hair Faux Pas. Dear Dan and Lizzie, my question is about a situation I worry about, though thankfully has not happened yet. I love cooking and entertaining, but have one major hang-up that nags at the back of my mind the entire time I'm hosting a meal or giving food as a gift. It is hair in the food. I am so careful that my hair is pulled back and check my clothes to make sure there are no strays that may fall into the pot or pan while I am cooking. But I still worry about serving someone a dish and finding a hair in it. I find this to be one of the most disgusting dining experiences and personally lose my appetite when it does happen. I hope that I never do this to someone, especially in my own home, but accidents happen. I am hoping that being armed with appropriate etiquette, should it happen, will ease my anxiety about the subject. Please advise, short of apologizing profusely as the host, please advise, short of apologizing profusely as the host, cook, and offender, what would be the appropriate dining etiquette in such a gross and embarrassing situation? Thanks so much for your insight. I love your podcast, Jasmine. Jasmine, thank you for the question. And this is a great opportunity for us to all remember that uh, there is a, a traditional idea in etiquette that nothing good can happen at the table with your hands above your shoulders. And why do we say this, except bringing food to your mouth? Why do we say this? <laughs> Because people putting their hands in their mouth, their nose, their eyes, their ears, even playing with their hair is perceived by many people as really gross. And you have really reminded us in a very graphic way that finding hair in your food is something that you think of as really gross. In fact, it ruins your appetite. And it is one of those little etiquette offenses that somebody could say, well, why why would it matter? I was just twirling my hair or I wasn't even thinking about it. And yet someone else across the table from you is thinking about about dander and loose hairs and just how gross it would be if any of that made it into the food. So we're all going to be extra careful. We're going to use this question as a little reminder to take extra care at the table with what we expose the people that we're dining to with. And this is also true of a cook or of a host. And you're imagining yourself in that really awkward and embarrassing situation of a guest finding a hair in in their food and how you would handle that situation. So this is another place where we get to give etiquette kudos and say thinking about this kind of thing ahead of time is actually one of the best ways to handle it well when it does happen. How we handle our mistakes, our accidents, our errors and faux pas says as much about us, maybe more than how we handle our successes. This is one of those cases where I think you want to acknowledge what's happened, offer a brief and genuine apology and move on as quickly as possible so you're not dwelling in that that gross territory that's really going to make everyone more squeamish. So, oh my goodness, that is, that, that is, uh, I'm so sorry that happened. Let me get that immediately and get you a fresh plate of food. And well, and that's the sweep real. Sweep it away and make it better as soon as possible. That's the real crux of it right there is that we, we know that Jasmine knows how to apologize. And as she said, you know, I'm of course going to do this, but she asked, where's that etiquette point? And that's exactly it. You offer to get a fresh plate of food. That's the etiquette point. That's the thing you can do as a host to completely rectify the situation. Now, there is a chance that this diner is very much like you, where it completely puts off their appetite. And they're thinking this might not just have been in my bowl. What if this thing was in the whole pot of soup that I'm being served or the whole dish that I just ate, you know, I'm about to eat out of? 
So you might even offer, could I replenish this for you? Could I get you a fresh plate? Or if you're worried that it came from the, you know, from the stock pot, would you like me to fix you something else? And that's a nice way to handle that. Um, of course, you might wind up with a whole table of guests saying, hey, we'd all like you to fix something else. Um, Dan, you you do and you, you have always brought up a good point about safety trumping etiquette. Occasionally, that offending item might not be that harmless hair or that little fly or something like that. It it might be something serious that you would want to call attention to. If the food, maybe the meat wasn't cooked fully. uh, If it was raw chicken or something. Or if there was a a foreign object in the food. Glass. The the, the extreme example, a small piece of broken glass. Things happen in kitchens and it may or may not be rectifiable at the table. And that's where as a host, you're going to have to be a little bit nimble. Someone might be really enthusiastic and (laughs) happy just to get a fresh plate of food. Someone might really not be enthusiastic (laughs) about their fresh plate of food. And then it really becomes a question of what is practical? Is it possible to offer to fix them a little something else? Is the table a small table where it would be relatively easy to offer to fix everyone something else? Or is it really something where, no, maybe one diner is going to pick at their food a little bit and you're going to check in with them at the end of the meal about getting them a snack or even just an apology and letting them know that you're going to really do your best to, to provide a meal that will offer them more comfort the next time they're at your table. So there you have it, Jasmine. You have both the, the 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 easy fix of just let me get you a fresh plate. I'm sure this hair just fell in while we were plating. You've got the extreme example of the food is raw or wrong or something. And that's when it is OK to announce to the table, everybody, hang on. You know, I think my chicken might need a little more time. You should probably just check yours before you eat it. That way you're not embarrassing the host, but you are putting that safety first. And then you have the gradations in between where it's like, hey, you know, you pull this host aside and you say it. um, Or you do take the fresh plate of food. Or maybe you don't take the fresh plate of food and you take them up on the offer of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But there are some gradations of how to handle it based on how bad the offense itself is. The thing I want Jasmine to walk away from this with is to feel okay. It's okay. Hosting isn't going to go perfect every single time. And you shouldn't be worried about that every time you decide to invite people over. I think you're doing everything you can. You're pulling your hair back. You're checking your clothing beforehand. I happen to have three pets. And so I have to worry about even just bringing the food to the table because goodness knows there's probably hair in the air. Um, And so there are some considerations that that you do want to kind of think of and, and think about how that can happen. But for the most part, this doesn't gross out that many people. Most people will say, oh, a fresh plate would be greater. Oh, no, I just removed the hair. And just know that that something that is very unsettling to you might not be as unsettling to other people. And that's okay. If they choose to accept that fresh plate, if they choose to just remove the foreign object, the item, that's okay. Don't be mortified. You go on being a great host. Focus on your guests, not your own worry. So have the confidence. I think you're going to do great. And I think people must love coming to your dinner parties. Oh, Dan, this next question is so for you. So this question is about birthing boundaries. I'm, I'm going to have some personal at the end of this that's going to put you on the spot, my cuz. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. So this question begins, Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I must start by thanking you for your wonderful podcast. I can't even begin to count how many times I've talked with others about topics discussed on your show and been able to encourage others to start listening as well. So thank you for putting on an engaging, relevant, and much appreciated podcast. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for encouraging others to listen. 
My question today stems from my clouded judgment on how to apply the three principles of consideration, respect, and honesty because I am too close to a situation. Very smart to be aware of that sometimes when we're too close and need that outside perspective. When I had my daughter, my parents and in-laws were waiting in the hospital. This was not something I had encouraged. When she was born, I ended up wanting to be present when everyone found out her gender. A fun surprise for all of us. So rather than just sending a nurse or doctor into the waiting room and announcing baby girl is born, you know, instead she wanted everyone to come in and her to be awake and and focused and, and there and present. They ended up needing to wait an additional hour after she was born before they were able to come and see us. In the meantime, we received numerous texts and calls from other family members letting us know the annoyance felt by our waiting family members. In the end, I was hurt that my own parents failed to respect my wishes and put their own feelings ahead of their daughter. Those feelings of annoyance were also shared with us directly by those family members afterwards. So it wasn't just like texting and filling in. It was like they actually spoke up and said, we didn't like waiting to have to come and see you and the baby. Confirming that what we heard was how they felt. Well, thankfully, we are soon to be in a similar situation and hopefully welcoming a baby this summer. I was hoping to communicate to all family members early on that my husband and I do not want anyone arriving at the hospital until we give them the okay. I was hoping to communicate this to everyone via face-to-face conversation as soon as possible as to frame expectations early on. However, in trying to craft the message, I am trying to keep consideration, respect, and honesty in mind. I'm having a tough time. Everything I come up with sounds rude or not firm enough. This is the best one I have so far. Quote, This time around, we would like to discourage anyone from waiting in the hospital until we give you the message that we are ready for visitors. Knowing that people are waiting was a stress for us last time, and we would like to prevent that from happening again. End quote. Too light? Question mark. Do I add a piece in about how I felt the last time three years ago, or should I just leave that part unsaid? I don't want to lie and say that the hospital bans visitors. I also want to try to be respectful for their feelings and consider that this is an important time for them. However, as I write that, I'm immediately incensed again because I feel as though the last time they did not respect me, nor were they considerate of my feelings. Bottom line, I don't want them to come until they're invited. I am afraid that if I don't say anything, we will end up having different expectations and further hurt feelings down the road. I also don't want to plan on withholding information from them when I do enter the hospital the next time, as I know that would really hurt their feelings. Any advice you have will be so appreciated. Loyally, Anonymous. Anonymous, you're smart to plan ahead because you were, you were right. There's a lot of emotions involved, and you're also their daughter who's like, you know, having a baby, which as Dan knows very well, is a big deal. I'm, I'm learning. You're I'm learning. learning. You're learning. And as I'm learning, I'm appreciating more and more the weight of this question, I for sure. I know the nuances within it. There's a lot of things to consider. It's why you don't get an easy sample script right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You're trying to validate your feelings and express what you're still heard about from three years ago. And at the same time, you're trying to protect a future situation and someone else's feelings. It's a lot. I definitely want to start out by acknowledging your centrality in this whole process, that a birth experience really is something that that while a lot of people are involved, you're at the center of it. And <laughs> no kidding. you get to, to operate with a certain amount of latitude because of that, that, that a lot of what um, is going on is going to be important to everyone. But ultimately, you, you get to make a lot of decisions. And I think that thinking ahead is your first really smart move here, that talking to people ahead of time 
is wise. Another thing that I think is really helpful here is that you can frame any communication or any direction that you're going to give this time around the fact this is your second time and you've got ideas that might be a little different than the first time, but you are better equipped, better prepared to offer good direction because you have a better sense of what to expect and how you want things to go. And there isn't any rule that says it has to go the second time just the way it went the first time. You get to to, to make changes if that's important to you. And it sounds based on something that didn't go so well last time. And when you talk about getting incensed again, even just thinking about it, I, I'm appreciating that this was really uncomfortable for you last time and wanting to, to be an aid in getting it to a better place. You do want to be really careful that you don't offer a lot of offense, that people don't perceive you as really setting up boundaries or walls that that don't take into consideration their desire to be helpful and to be present and participating and participating in a way that that helps you. I, in that spirit, wouldn't get into how disrespected you felt or annoyed you felt last time. I think that you can call that water under the bridge, call that a lesson learned and try to proceed from that point in a way that's going to let everybody feel good and that doesn't necessarily drag up those bad feelings unless you're getting a lot of pushback on the changes that you're trying to put in place. I think that's really important. What you just said is that that you want to kind of save the emotional for the very last level of explaining if you have to. This incident did happen three years ago. And because you didn't have the follow up conversations kind of right afterwards or you didn't kind of plan at that point. Hey, if this happens again, this isn't the way we there was no kind of resolving of that. I'm getting the sense of. And so bringing it up and using it as the perspective for delivering what is going to be upsetting news to your parents, I think is a difficult place to come from. And it doesn't set you up for success. So I think what you want to be getting at is the point in this. And I I tend to come from a place where the more you can eliminate the explanation of feelings, it's so funny because in some places that's exactly what you want to do. But I think in this place, hurt feelings three years later when we're going to be talking about a really positive and an event that people want to be really involved in is going to come across as very negative and very hurtful. I think if you said to your parents, I want to discourage you from coming to the hospital when I have my next baby, I don't think that's going to go over very well. And I think there's a way you can frame it that make it will let it go over well because you need to communicate. Dan's right. You need to communicate this directly to your parents, but in a way that's going to support them and support you. I might try something like this. Mom, we are so excited to welcome baby number two, and we're starting to prepare as best we can. We're thinking about that delivery. And while we want to share the excitement with you, we ask that everybody is going to wait to come to the hospital until you hear from us. We'll let you know when we go into labor, and then we'll let you know once the baby's born and it's a good time to come visit the hospital. But we don't want everyone to have to sit around waiting and not sure of when and where and what's happening. So we figured it would be really good for us and for you if we just made those communications clear and let you know exactly when the right time to come is. I want to be focused. I want to be present. I don't want to be groggy and, and really tired when I see you and we all talk about the baby and its name and all these fun things. My favorite part <laughs> yeah. of that sample script <laughs> is that you're giving a lot of information. You're saying, you know, I, I'm planning to go at this time. We're going to let you know when that happens. And then we're expecting this is going to happen. We'll let you know when that happens. And we'll communicate when that right moment is for you to spring into action and come Yay! see us, meet us, visit with us. And 
they can make decisions about where they want to do that waiting. But you've now been very clear about what your process is and what the stages of that process are. It sounds like maybe one of the places that, that the, the hang up came before was there was a whole stage to the process that people weren't anticipating. And you know what? It's a situation where there are going to be some people that aren't as directly in control of every step along the way. And, and that's hard. If they're going to feel aggrieved or put out or that th that you want to set them up not to feel that way and giving them more information, I think, is, is helpful to avoid that feeling. Exactly. Now, that being said, you can deliver this as amazingly eloquently with all the consideration in the world and it still might land wrong. Mom might still feel really hurt that she can't be at the hospital when her baby is having a second baby. Mm -hmm. That's a really big deal for parents, especially moms, I think, who have been through this. They know what a big deal it is to go through labor and to give birth. And it is your your baby is doing this. And it's a, it's a scary and exciting thing all at once. So there is so much emotion that being told, wait, might be really difficult for parents. And so if that happens, this is when I think you can come back to some of the reasoning that's led to this request. Mm -hmm. And this is where you might really explain w what happened last time. And the thing I'm going to encourage you to do is practice some of those explanations so that that feeling of being incensed doesn't come up. And so that you're like, I can communicate this clearly and just without blame like and that. instead communicate it in a way that that is, Mom, last time it was so hard for you guys waiting in that waiting room for an hour. And I really wanted to be there when we announced name and gender to you. And to experience that was so important to me. And to find out everyone was so upset. It was it was just like nobody won. And I want everyone to win this time around. That's the way that you talk about it, where you're getting to this beautiful, positive place and you can encourage her to come there with you. Something else that I really want to emphasize that I like about the approach that Anonymous is taking here is the no lie standard. Yes. Stick to that no lie standard. Keep those explanations clean. Keep them true. Keep them honest. And you're really going to be in the safest territory as you navigate this next really exciting life event. Just so you know, we're, this, we're recording this on January 3rd, which means Dan has four days until due date is upon us. And and who knows when is the baby's going to come in between those four days. We are so in the or window. Or after those four days. It's like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this could be any moment. My, my cousin's phone, every time it's rung for oh the last week God. and a half, she picks up the phone and says, is it time? Is, is it, it time? time? Is it, oh, so I, at the very start of this, said I was going to get back in. I will fully admit, I'm like, I wonder if he's going to let me come say hi at the hospital. Or like, what if they get stuck on the mountain and then the, the home birth the way Dan was born? Or it's this or that or it's I'm so like I don't know what's gonna happen and there's so many possibilities and I don't know if I'm gonna see you the day after a week after two after your paternity leave I mean I don't know when and so I'm all I'm all in grandma's territory right now <laughs> it's like everything short, short answer I'll share with everyone we're gonna let everyone jump in we're gonna be so come one come all the more the barrier so really I told looking you, forward to seeing you there when when it happens I was gonna say the one thing I did ask for is I said please keep me on the, the first round of text messages like, let me know as soon as it's happening so I can just put all that good energy out there for you. <laughs> for all of these reasons and more, you will absolutely be on that short list. Hooray! Anonymous, we wish you all the best in your preparations and on the day of. This is such an exciting time, and we're so glad that you're sharing a little piece of it with us. 
And thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, and salutes to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can write them out for us in email form, or you can record a voice memo and send it to us via email. You can also hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette. It's the new year, which means a fresh start for your business. And a great year starts with making great hires. Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. To find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can easily. ZipRecruiter lets you post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You'll find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface, which lets you quickly screen candidates and move through the hiring process efficiently. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. Right now, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com awesome. That's ZipRecruiter.com awesome. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com awesome. Each week, we like to share your thoughts and updates, and this feedback comes from Marie, who actually reached us two different ways with two different questions and has an update from both. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I hope you're doing well and staying warm. I want to share a few updates with you. First, thank you for your response to my question about how to let roommates on a school trip know that I snore loudly. Your answer did reach me on time for me to plan for my trip, which turned out very well. The gals I shared a room with were kind and generous. One was a heavy sleeper herself and responded to my middle-of-the-night snoring with her own embarrassing trait of talking in her sleep. (laughs) It was actually entertaining. Oh, I bet. The other was thankful for the earplugs I provided and didn't end up using them or even needing them because of how exhausted we were from the conference and how deeply she slept. So thanks to your advice, I went into the situation prepared to handle it. And thanks to the conference, it became a non-issue. That's awesome. I love it when things work out smoothly and well. (laughs) Me too. Second, I asked via Twitter about sending two thank you cards in one envelope, which you said was fine. Since then, we, my three-year-old, my six-year-old, my husband, and I, have sent many notes of appreciation in a single envelope. From the feedback I received, it's more enjoyable to receive and open a bulging envelope. (laughs) And it's allowed me to send thank you notes by stretching my stamps even further. I think this is so cool to hear this. And what's interesting is it kind of, so this is, Marie's question was the one that then carried out for like three other discussions on thank you notes and parsing out how to do double thank yous and thank yous for events and gifts and this and that. And I loved it so much. But what was really cool is that one of the things we had said was we could really see a situation where after a major holiday and the whole family has to write thank you notes, everybody's writing a thank you note to grandma and the kids are young enough where they're not at the process of learning how to write the address and everything and mailing it isn't a thing, that sending a packet of of thank yous actually could be really fun. And it's so nice to hear that that's what's going on. At some point, I will say, for the sake of going through the motions, encourage the kids to do separate ones. But at the same time, right now, what a great way to, like you said, strep... What a great way to, like you said, stretch your stamps and to have people receive this wonderful like bundle of thanks. I love that. I love it, too. And you're reminding me, sometimes when we go teach in a school environment, I'll get a manila envelope afterwards filled with thank you notes. And ah, every student in the class will have written a fun. thank you note. And it feels like you're unwrapping a present that's just full of thanks. It's really <laughs> quite remarkable. 
Oh, our next feedback comes from episode 120, where a woman who uses a wheelchair was asked nosy questions by a receptionist at, I think it was a doctor's office that she visits regularly. And the feedback begins, Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I just finished listening to episode 120, and I want to say thank you for mentioning that someone who uses a wheelchair is making a very personal choice and that you need to respect the privacy of that choice. I'd like to add, if someone is using an assistance animal, it is the very same thing. Many children and adults wanting... Excuse me. Very same thing. Many children and adults want nothing more than to blend in and go about their lives anonymously. They also don't want to be dependent on anyone else or anything else in order to live their lives. An assistant animal, whether it be an emotional service animal or a service dog or a seeing eye dog, is the manifestation of hours of discussion and training among the family of that individual. It can be a commitment of two years worth of training for both the animal and the handler. It can also be an investment of over $20,000 to train and care for such an animal. Uh, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if you see one, here are some points of etiquette I'd like to share as someone whose partner relies on a service dog for quote unquote normal life. Number one, do not distract the dog. Many disabilities, such as epilepsy, are invisible, and even a small distraction can put the handler at physical or mental risk. Number two, consider your location before you approach the handler or dog team or handler and animal team to ask any questions or make comments about the animal. Your fellow church member is likely to be more interested in talking with you about their experience with their animal rather than just a random stranger at the mall. I really like that idea of think about the time and the the relevance and kind of connection that you might have with the person or are you literally just a complete stranger? Remember, number three is to remember that you have no idea why they are using such a support and therefore should keep your opinions as to the veracity of their need to yourself. It's already difficult to admit you need help. Having to justify your need to a stranger is beyond the pale. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share some points of etiquette that may not be well known in the larger population. The ADA website can answer many more questions that any listeners might have. I really enjoy your show and always learn something. Kristen Schroeder. We also heard about this question from Tina through Twitter, who thought that the question was ableist and that the receptionist was infantilizing the client since her helper will be away. This is something to be really careful of, is that it really can come across this way when you get into the nosy question territory. Um, We also want to be careful not to assume because we don't know what the receptionist sounded like. But given that Our listener had written in feeling like the questions were too nosy. So I think it's important to hear both the forgiving and generous side, as well as the, I don't want to say calling outside, but I think that the identifying it as potentially ableist, I think that that's important for people to recognize and to understand that sometimes what seems like such a gentle and conversational, I think when we did this question, we're like, maybe she was just happy and conversational. Oh, where's your person going? Are you going too? Like, da, da, da. I think that you going to, we said, came a bit far, but at the same time, you just want to identify that they might not be aware. And at the same time, opening up the idea that questions like that are very ableist and that it is something that you want to be cautious of. And the more we can be aware of what something sounds like to another person, the better we're able to communicate with that person. So thank you, Tina, for bringing up the idea that it is really important to be aware of. 
For today's postscript, we decided to honor the transition into a new year and the transition into a new phase of this podcast with a little look back. And we decided to visit in with Margaret Visser, one of our favorite writers about manners, particularly about table manners. And this is, comes from page 56 of her book, The Rituals of Dinner. Manners have indeed changed. They were not invented on the spot, but developed into the system to which we now conform. Since manners are rituals, and therefore conservative, part of their purpose is always conservation. They change slowly, if at all, and usually in the face of long and widespread unwillingness. Even when a new way of doing things has been adopted by a powerful elite group, using forks instead of fingers, for example, it may take decades, even centuries, for people generally to decide to follow suit. Forks had not only to be seen in use and their advantages successfully argued, they had also to be made and sold, then produced in versions which more and more people could afford, as they slowly ceased being merely unnecessary and became the mark of civilized behavior. After the 11th century of the first extent document describing, with wonder, the sight of someone using one, the fork took eight centuries to become a utensil employed universally in the West. Naturally enough, historians interested themselves in why such a change, from eating with our hands to using a metal mediation instrument instead, took place at all. In our more thoughtful moments, we no longer allow ourselves to feel, simply and happily, that which has happened is progress, that the eight centuries were an apprenticeship, a preparation for the attainment of our present enlightened state. Forks have placed us in a singularly distant relationship vis-a-vis -vis our food, and more importantly, they both express and influence our self-enclosed, fastidious attitudes towards the people with whom we eat. The universalizing of the use of forks is, among other things, a sign of the spreading of a social attitude. Our own culture, as it happens, provides us with a means of tracing this development through the survival of books on etiquette that have appeared through the ages. These humble mostly duly written little pamphlets can be studied and compared so as to document shifts in table manners and etiquette in general. Thank you so much, Margaret Visser, for your astute and insightful writing about manners and table manners in particular. Oh, Margaret Visser, how I love that you understand the importance of the fork. No, what I really love is that um, you're really able to here, how we've changed as a society, how the idea of something that was almost affectatious and elitist to begin with then becomes something that becomes attainable. It becomes desirable. It becomes uh, normal. normal. It becomes, I think it's funny how this idea that becoming civil became a thing that you didn't want to be the low rung of humanity somehow. And it started to define what the low rung of humanity looked like to have these little things. And it was it, it not, not low rung based on socioeconomic status. Having a fork, yes, they were made of silver, so that would be a cost to one. But being able to use one, not even owning one, but having the skill to use one was something that every man could do. And the question was, were you going to do it or not? And on this topic, Visser gets more into the idea of a particular writer on manners and how uh, how he actually wrote in great detail 
about bodily functions and how bodily functions became things that we did not do in public. And it was a real sign of whether or not you were civilized or uncivilized, whether you would allow flatulence in public or brushing of the hair or I don't any any of these things that we now deem kind of, you know, private or things that we ignore if they happen in front of us and someone says, excuse me, and there's kind of a little polite discretion around it. Whereas back then it was a defining feature of whether it had it had nothing to do with money. It had nothing to do with class. It had to do with how you literally contained your body and how you dealt with your body and its functions. And I find that fascinating. Margaret Vister has this incredible clarity of vision. And yes. she, she states it um, explicitly at the start of this passage where she talks about manners being rituals. She understands that they're behaviors, but they're behaviors that express a great deal about who we are, that these this is ritualized behavior, that there is a greater significance to the behavior than the, just the thing itself, than the bringing of that single bite of food to your mouth, but that there is a larger significance about one's relationship to society, to the other people that they're eating with, to oneself. I also love her innate understanding that these rituals are by definition conservative, Yes, that they change slowly, and being part of a tradition that has been a part of the evolution of etiquette over almost 100 years. I really appreciate that perspective as well because there is this this delicate dance between the preserving of tradition and also uh, an awareness and a willingness of how these things do change over time and how that is significant to allowing us to evolve, to allow our rituals to change. Thank you, Margaret Visser. We really appreciate it. We like to end the show every week with a salute to etiquette that's made a difference in your life. And this salute actually came to us from when Dan was in India, and it is from Hope. And I, I particularly really love this salute. Hi, Lizzie. Uh, since Dan is on the other side of the planet as I write this, and you're the one that receives these emails anyway. True. <laughs> I want to thank you for the podcast. I've been binge listening at work for the past couple of weeks and I'm finally listening to today's episode. The show has in turn given me comfort in knowing that I have been treating people very well. The platinum rule has long determined most of my actions, as well as giving me crazy post-wedding guilt. We got married six months ago and I'm just now working on thank you notes. Funny how etiquette can do that to you, right? I wanted to give an etiquette salute to Tim, a fellow employee. In September, I started working in the kitchen area of a 400-plus employee insurance company in Indiana. Most of what I do is restocking our shelves of snacks and lunch items, along with washing dishes all afternoon. A few weeks ago, a guy who I'd never spoken with came up to me and introduced himself. He had realized that I had been there for a while, but he didn't know my name. Every time we've passed each other in the hall since then, he has given me a cheerful, Hi, Hope! Since I'm relatively new and I'm not doing anything to directly contribute to the actual work of such a large company, I usually feel like I go unnoticed. Moments like this and people like Tim are so incredibly encouraging for this quiet, shy introvert. Thanks for all that you do to make the world a more honest, respectful, and considerate place. Hope. And Hope, thank you for that little reminder that it can be something as simple as saying hello and remembering someone's name that can really turn around someone's day. I am going to remember that as I go about my business today. It would be the thoughtful thing to do. I bet you'd be glad for the chance to get acquainted. Well, I guess it would be thoughtful to introduce you to the others. Well, that's our show today. Thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. 
And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and The Emily Post Institute. And don't forget, you can also record a voice memo and email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. And we would love that because we want your voice on the show. Please help us out. If you love the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. 